This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Robin Curtis, and I played Lieutenant Savick in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And you're listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Shimmering ways of heat. A flat, unforgiving landscape stretches to infinity. A storm of dust gathers on the horizon, small at first, increasing in size as it rolls towards us. Just as the storm threatens to engulf us, a rider on horseback emerges. This is Nimbus 3, in the neutral zone, the planet of galactic peace. A twisted rhino horn juts from the snout of this odd creature. The rider spurs the beast, driving it onward. His white robes flare out behind him like the wings of an avenging angel. He rides like a man possessed. Camera pans an arid expanse of scorched earth. John a ragged and malnourished homesteader of some alien race, toils beneath a blazing sun, his back to the camera. He sinks an auguring device into the ground, drilling in vain for water. There are many hundreds of holes in the earth around him. John reacts to the cloth of the approaching hooves. He tenses, then whirls around, clutching a crude homemade pipe gun. Horse and rider thunder toward him. John raises his pipe gun and fires a warning shot. The rider reins his horse to a halt, ten feet short of John. The beast snorts and stamps its hooves impatiently, while the rider studies the frightened homesteader and removes a breathing device from his mouth. Finally, he speaks. I thought weapons were forbidden on this planet. The rider swings down from the saddle. He's tall, powerfully built beneath his dusty robes, his face shadowed by a hood. He indicates their bleak surroundings. Besides, I can't believe you'd kill me for a field of empty holes. It's all I have, 
John sags under the futile weight of his existence. The rider approaches him without fear. He gently removes the weapon from John's trembling hands. It's all the homesteader can do to keep from sobbing. Your pain runs deep. What do you know of my pain? Let us explore it together. The rider collects himself and concentrates deeply. John is immediately transfixed. He begins to tremble. Tears flood his dirty cheeks. Each man hides a secret pain. It must be exposed and reckoned with. It must be hauled from the darkness and forced into the light. Share your pain with me and gain strength from it. John whimpers and cries out in anguish. Finally, the catharsis ends. John drops to his knees, then looks up. He opens his eyes and blinks in wonder and amazement at the rider. The rider helps him to his feet. Where did you get this power? The power was within you. I feel as if a weight has been lifted from my heart. How can I repay you for this miracle? Join my quest. What is it you seek? What you seek? What all men have sought since time began? The ultimate knowledge. To find it, we'll need a starship. A starship? There are no starships on Nimbus 3. Perhaps I have a way to bring one here. But how? Have faith, my friend. There are more of us than you know. The rider throws back his hood to reveal rugged, charismatic features. He's bearded. His hair is shaggy. He has the piercing eyes of a zealot. And to our surprise, pointed ears. His name is Cybok. You're a Vulcan? Cybok nods and does something we've never seen a Vulcan do. He smiles. The Vulcan, his convert, and the horse are tiny figures in an overpoweringly bleak landscape. Camera tilts up through the waves of heat to the blazing sky and the galaxy beyond. A dazzling journey through the cosmos. Trek FM presents A Standard Orbit production Star Trek V The Final Frontier Starring Zach Moore as Captain James T. Kirk Ken Tripp as Spock John Mills as Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy Lee Sargent as Montgomery Scotty Scott Justin Ozer as Sulu, Haley Stoddard as Uhura, Richard Marquez as Claw, Amy Nelson as Vixes and Caitlin Dar, Duncan Barrett as St. John Talbot, Brandon Shamutala as General Cord, Zachary Fruling as the Admiral, with Norman C. Lau as God and Tony Black as Cybok and Chekhov. Adapted for audio by Zach Moore. Narrated by Tony Robinson. 
we tilt down to a breathtaking shot of Earth. This is Planet Earth, Yosemite National Park, Stardate 8454.011. A hand clutches a sheer rock groping for purchase. Camera pulls back to reveal Captain James T. Kirk, 800 feet above the surrounding forest. He climbs the face of El Capitan without ropes, grommets or equipment, just man against mountain. Using the cracks in the rock face for hand and footholds, Jim Kirk struggles up the treacherous incline, one painful inch at a time. We hold our breath, afraid he'll fall. Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy watches Kirk's progress through futuristic binoculars with mounting unease. From this distance, Kirk resembles a small fly on a big wall. You'll have a great time, Bones. You'll enjoy your leave and be able to relax. You call this relaxing? I'm a damn nervous wreck. If I'm not careful, I'll end up talking to myself. Kirk inserts the pads of two fingers into a crack above his head. He exhales, focusing concentration. Kirk pulls himself up, balancing on a ledge barely an inch wide. Exhilarated, he pauses to admire the view. A breathtaking but vertigo-inducing high-angle shot of Yosemite. This may be the 23rd century, but the park looks the same as it did 300 years ago. There's a soft whooshing sound and Spock suddenly rises into frame. Greetings, Captain. Spock hovers in midair alongside the startled Kirk, kept aloft by means of levitation boots. His hands are clasped behind his back, typically Spock-like. Spock! What brings you to this neck of the woods? I have been monitoring your progress. I'm flattered. 1,200 points of interest in Yosemite. Did you pick me? Spock doesn't take Kirk's hint to get lost. I regret to inform you that the record time for free climbing El Capitan is in no danger of being broken. I'm not trying to break any records, Spock. I'm doing this because I enjoy it. Not to mention the most important reason for climbing a mountain. Which is? Because it's there. Captain, I do not think you realize the gravity of your situation. Kirk slips, but manages to gain a handhold and save himself. Beneath his feet, a mini avalanche of rocks is dislodged, tumbling to the valley below. On the contrary, gravity is foremost on my mind. Spock, look, I'm trying to make it a sit here. Why don't you go pester Dr. McCoy for a while? Dr. McCoy is not in the best of moods. McCoy, still watching Kirk's progress, is getting angrier by the second. Damn irresponsible playing games with life. Kirk strains for the next handhold. Concentration is vital. You must be one with the rock. Spock, I appreciate your concern, but if you don't stop distracting me, I'm liable to be one with the... <laughs> McCoy lets out a gasp as he watches Kirk's tiny figure drop down the face of El Capitan. Spock dives after Kirk firing boosters to increase his speed. Kirk twists and turns end over end, 
as he hurtles downward. He thrashes at air, unable to defeat gravity. McCoy turns away, unable to watch. Kirk is dropping, dropping, the ground rushing up like a hungry mouth. A split second before impact, Spock swoops into shot. His powerful fingers grab Kirk by the ankle and jerk him upward in the nick of time. McCoy hasn't heard the expected splat. He turns to look and what he sees is Kirk suspended in air, bobbing upside down at the end of Spock's arm. The top of Kirk's head is practically touching the ground. That's how close he came to being pizza. Perhaps because it is there is not a sufficient reason for wanting to climb a mountain. Kirk dangles, undignified but lucky to be alive. I'm hardly in a position to disagree. Kirk sees McCoy approach. Hey Bones, mind if we drop in for dinner? That's right, turn it into a big joke. Damn it, Jim, are you that anxious to meet your maker? This is Nimbus 3, Desert Day. Saivok and his mount ride majestically to the top of a dune and halt. They're followed by John. He's on foot, but he clambers over the dune with determination. Behind John comes another tattered homesteader, and behind him, two more. Without warning, a virtual army of ragged settlers swarm over the dune. They fill the screen, aliens of every different race, the poor and downtrodden, united in their devotion to Cybok. His army draws up beside him, dust rising. Cybok points into the blurry middle distance. My friends, behold, paradise. Camera pans off Cybok. Below them sprawls the single outpost of civilization on this desolate world. A small, ramshackle village, smack in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by high walls. A lone rider on horseback crosses the desert, headed for the outpost. Main gate. Across the top of the arch, broken letters spell out PARADISE. Some cynical joker has added the word LOST. The lone rider signals the lookout sentries, who open the heavy iron gate. Camera cranes up over the arch as the rider passes beneath and rides towards the sleazy-looking saloon at the far end of the street. Paradise City Saloon. A 23rd century equivalent of a frontier saloon. Futuristic honky-tonk music. The patrons are rugged, unpleasant types. Klingons, Romulans, Andorians, you name it. Much drink and boisterous talk. Arguments, fistfights. Two men play futuristic pool on a table filled with water. A sexy cat woman dances atop a bar, flicking her long striped tail and hissing seductively at her rowdy audience. A stranger coming from outside, approaching familiar western-style doors. But instead of swinging open like you'd expect, they whoosh apart automatically. 
The stranger steps into the bar and the doors whoosh back into place. Talk and noise go dead as the entire saloon turns its attention to the newcomer. The stranger, seen only from the back, steps into the squalid bar. The bartender jerks his thumb in the direction of the back room. The stranger crosses to the back room door and disappears inside. Talk and noise resume. Back room. The stranger lowers the breathing device from her face and is revealed to be a young woman, a Romulan. Her name is Caitlin Dar, and she stands on the threshold of the room, trying to adjust her eyes to the murky surroundings. She's a little nervous and a long way from home. The back room is an area for unwanted odds and ends. A ceiling fan swishes overhead, pushing hot air around. Two men are sprawled in chairs at opposite ends of a table. They're too busy drinking to notice Caitlin's entrance. Gentlemen, I'm Caitlin Dar. The man seated closest to Caitlin slowly swivels his head in her direction. He wearily extracts himself from his chair and comes forward. He's a Terran named St. John Talbot, thin and dissipated, alcoholic. Talbot is a veteran of the diplomatic corps. He pats down his unruly hair and straightens his soiled suit. He gives Caitlin a tired smile and extends a limp hand. Ah, oh, yes, our new Romulan representative. Welcome to Paradise City, Miss Dar, capital of the so-called planet of galactic peace. I'm Sinjin Talbot, the Federation representative here on Nimbus 3, and my charming companion here is the Klingon Consul Cord. Caitlin regards the hulking figure on the other end of the table. Cord is an old, overweight Klingon, a once great warrior now past his prime. He doesn't rise to greet Caitlin. Instead, he takes a swig from a flagon and emits an earth-shaking belch. I expect that's Klingon for hello. Reacting to Cord's stench, Caitlin holds her breathing device in front of her mouth. He doesn't speak English. And I don't speak Klingon. I'm relieved to hear that. Please sit down, Miss Dar. Can I offer you a drink? Caitlin brushes the dust from a chair at the opposite end of the table from Cord. I must say I'm shocked at what I've seen. Hunger, poverty, no law enforcement, and here the two of you sit drinking? Without warning, Cord drunkenly lets loose with a barrage of his native tongue. What did he say? He said he hopes you'll enjoy your tour of duty here. Might I ask, Miss Dar, what terrible thing you did to get yourself banished to this armpit of the galaxy? I volunteered. <laughs> volunteered? Talbot turns to Cord and translates her answer into Klingon. Cord chortles derisively. Nimbus 3 is a great experiment. Twenty years ago, when our three governments agreed to develop this planet together, a new age was born. Your new age died a quick death. The great drought put an end to it, and the settlers we conned into coming here, the dregs of the galaxy, they immediately took to fighting amongst themselves. We forbade them weapons, they fashioned their own. Then it appears I've arrived just in time. The policies that the three of us agree on will have far-reaching results. 
my dear girl, we're not here to agree. We're here to disagree. This great experiment, as you call it, was instigated to satisfy a bunch of bleeding hearts whining for galactic peace. It was intended to fail. I'm afraid I don't share that view. <laughs> there, you see? We're disagreeing already. I'm here to open discussions for a solution to these problems. Cord comes to life. He roars with laughter and spits back a disgusting mouthful of Klingon. <laughs> Talbot winces. What did he say? I want his exact words. He said the only thing he'd like to open is your blouse. He's heard Romulan women are different. Caitlin's embarrassment turns to anger. You can tell Consul Cord. Never mind. I'll tell him myself in the only Klingon I know. Caitlin lets loose with a Klingon epithet. No translation necessary. Patak! Sputtering with rage, Cord hurls his flagon aside and clambers to his feet. Screw you, too! He does speak English. Slyle bugger. Further argument is interrupted by shouts from outside and the whine of a warning klaxon. A handful of sentries brace themselves against the gate. It suddenly gives way. Camera climbs up over the top of the arch to reveal Cybok's army on the threshold of the city. In their midst, towering majestically above them, is Cybok on horseback. He urges his mount forward. With quiet determination, he and his army pour under the arch and proceed up the main drag. Townspeople scurrying for protection, anticipating an attack. Those who consider challenging Cybok are allayed by the crude weapons and intimidating looks of his followers. Cybok intends to take this town by show of force without having to fire a shot. And it looks like he'll succeed. Cord, Caitlin and Talbot emerge to see what the hubbub is about. When they see the approaching forces, Cord and Talbot immediately turn tail and run back inside. After a moment, Caitlin follows. Cord, fearing the worst, goes behind the bar and opens a bottle. He upends it and pours the contents down his throat. He prefers to die drunk. Talbot runs to the far side of the room and yanks a dusty sheet off a primitive communications screen. Caitlin rushes to his side as he desperately tries to get it working. The saloon doors are forced open. John and several soldiers pour in brandishing weapons. Get away from that screen! The klaxon winds down to eerie silence as the soldiers herd Cord, Caitlin and Talbot together. Cybok enters. Romulan, Terran, Klingon, consider yourselves my prisoners. <laughs> prisoners? We're already prisoners on this worthless ball of rock. Of what possible value could we be to you? Nimbus 3 may be a worthless ball of rock, but it does have one unique treasure. It's the only place in the entire galaxy that has the three of you. Cord reaches for the pistol at his side, but before his fingers can grasp it, 
Cybok soldiers noisily cock their weapons and point them at his heart. Cord is outgunned and he knows it. He sputters impotently. I don't know who you are or what you want, but I can tell you this. Our government will stop at nothing to ensure our safety. That's exactly what I'm counting on. This is Earth, space dock, a huge cavernous area designed as a high and dry for space vessels. Among this warehouse of ships is the one we know best. USS Enterprise, NCC 1701A. The Enterprise Bridge. A meager repair crew lazily overhauls consoles and monitors. Some things work, most do not. One thing that does work is Chief Engineer Montgomery Scott, who looks up as Communications Officer Uhura enters stepping around cables. Let's see what she's got, the captain said. And then we found out, didn't we? I'm sure you'll whip her into shape, Scotty. You always do. Ahura, why aren't you on leave? I thought we were going together. I cannot leave her when she needs me the most. I had a feeling you'd say something like that, so... I brought you some dinner. Alas, you're the most understanding woman I know. The bridge lights start to flash red. An ear-splitting klaxon sounds. I just fixed that damn thing. Turn it off, will ya? Uhura goes to her console to switch it off, but sees something odd. She punches a button and responds. This is the Enterprise. Identify yourself. Enterprise, this is Starfleet. We have a Priority 7 situation in the neutral zone. Stand by, Starfleet. Scotty, it's for real. You cannot be serious. The ship's in pieces and with less than a skeleton crew aboard. Starfleet, are you aware of our current status? Current status understood. Stand by to copy operational orders and recall key personnel. Uhura and Scotty share grim looks. This is Earth. Forest. Day. Commander Sulu and Chekhov tramp through dense woods. From their weary expressions, it's clear they've been hiking a long time. Sulu leads the way. Chekhov trudges behind him. Admit it, we're lost. All right, we're lost. But we're making good time. I don't believe this. Commander Sulu here. Uhura studies a monitor showing Sulu and Chekhov as two blips on a grid. Commander Sulu, this is the Enterprise. Bad news, gentlemen. Shore leave's been cancelled. Rescued at last. Return to the prearranged coordinates for pickup. Sulu and Chekhov look at each other. Don't tell her you're lost. You'll never leave it down. Is there a problem, gentlemen? Um, yes. Um, we've been caught in, uh, we've been caught in a blizzard. And we can't see a thing. Request you direct us to the coordinates. Chekhov provides blizzard noises. On Enterprise, Uhura listens to The Blizzard and checks her graphics display for weather reports. She smiles. I'm sorry about your weather. My visual says sunny skies and 70 degrees. Sulu, look! The sun's come out. It's a miracle! Don't worry, fellas. Your secret's safe with me. I'll send the shuttlecraft to pick you up. Uhura, 
I owe you one. Sulu out. Sulu and Chekhov sit down on a boulder to wait. I should have gone to Yosemite with the captain. What's the difference? If you've seen one national park, you've seen them all. Camera tilts up to reveal Mount Rushmore in the background. We pan the granite faces of Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, Lincoln, and, surprise, the face of a fifth president, who happens to be a woman, a black woman. McCoy stands over a blazing campfire. A covered pot simmers on the coals. McCoy picks up a pan and bangs it with a spoon. He's slightly tipsy. Come and get it! Come and get it! Camera pulls back to reveal Kirk and Spock two feet away. Knock it off! Knock it off, Bones! We're right here, and we're starving! McCoy grins and crouches beside the covered pot. He revels in their undivided attention. Buy pottle seeds, Doctor? Beans, Spock. But no ordinary beans. These are from an old southern recipe handed down to me by my father. And if you turn your Vulcan nose at these, you're not just insulting me, you're insulting countless generations of McCoys. In that case, I have little choice but to sample your beans. McCoy ladles out the beans. Kirk tears into his. Spock tries a forkful. He finds the taste strangely exciting. Surprisingly good. However, it contains a flavoring I'm not familiar with. That's the secret ingredient. Got any more of that secret ingredient, Bones? You bet your buns. McCoy grins and pulls out a bottle of bourbon. Spock stops in mid-chew and McCoy fills Kirk's cup. Am I to understand that your secret ingredient is alcohol? Bourbon, Spock. Kentucky bourbon. Care for a snort? Bourbon and beans, an explosive combination. Do you think Spock can handle it? Couldn't possibly affect his Vulcan metabolism. Could eat a bowl of termites and it wouldn't hurt him. As you are so fond of pointing out, Doctor, I am half human. It certainly doesn't show. Thank you. This guy never changes. I insult him and he takes it as a compliment. You know, the two of you could drive a man to drink. Me? What did I do? You really piss me off, Jim. Human life is far too precious to risk on crazy stunts. Maybe it didn't cross your macho mind, but when you fell off that mountain, you should have been killed. It crossed my mind. And? Even as I fell, I knew I wouldn't die. Oh? I thought he was the only one who's immortal. It's not that, Bones. I knew I wouldn't die because the two of you were with me. I do not understand. I've always known. I'll die alone. I'll call Valhalla and reserve you a room. It's a mystery what draws us together. All that time and space getting on each other's nerves. And what do we do when shore leave comes along? Spend it together. Other people have families. Other people, Bones. Not us. They dwell on this thought for a moment. Then Kirk notices that Spock has removed a sack from his backpack. Spock reaches into the sack and takes out a marshmallow, which he attaches to the end of a pointed stick. What are you doing, Spock? I'm preparing to toast a marshmallow. Well, I'll be damned. A marshmallow. Where did you learn that? Before leaving the ship, I consulted the library computer to familiarize myself with customs of camping out. The evening meal is traditionally followed by toasting of marshmallows. 
Spock offers sticks and marshmallows to Kirk and McCoy, who play along, amused by Spock's dead serious approach to frivolity. Tell me something, Spock. What do we do after we toast the marsh, uh, the uh, marshmallows? We consume them. I know we consume them. I mean, after that. I believe we are required to engage in a ritual known as the sing-along. I haven't sung around a campfire since I was a boy in Iowa. What should we see? Bones? How about Camptown races? Pack up your troubles. Are we leaving, Captain? It's a song title, Spock. Ah. Moon over Rigel 7. Row, row, row your boat. Row, row, row your boat. Excellent. Do you know it, Spock? I did not encounter that song in my research. The lyrics are simple. Row, row, row your boat. Gently. Down the stream. Merrily, 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 merrily. Life is but a dream. Bones and I will start. And when we give you the signal, jump in. Doctor, if you please. McCoy takes a hit of booze and clears his throat. Don't say I didn't warn you. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. They signal Spock that it's his turn to jump in, but the Vulcan merely regards them quizzically. The sing-along grinds to a halt. What's wrong, Spock? You didn't jump in. I was trying to comprehend the meaning of the words. It's a song, you green-blooded Vulcan. You sing it. The words aren't important. What's important is that you have a good time singing it. Oh, I'm sorry, Doctor. Were we having a good time? I liked him better before he died. Why don't we call it a night and get some sleep? I'm anxious to have another go at El Cap in the morning. Over my dead body. They prepare for bed. Under a twinkling sky, the three men settle into their sleeping bags. Captain? Wrong lead. Call me Jim. Jim? Yes, Spock. Life is not a dream. Go to sleep, Spock. Yes, Captain. Good night, Spock. Good night, Jim. Good night, Bones. Good night, Doctor. Good night, Spock. Good night, Jim. They go to sleep. Stars twinkle overhead. Klingon space. A NASA pioneer probe tumbles through space. Ancient, forgotten, the device is flotsam. On its side is a plaque showing an image of two humans and simple mathematical and scientific symbols. It comes past the camera and out of this distortion, a Klingon bird of prey materializes. Bird of prey bridge. Doors separate to admit Claw, the bird of prey's swashbuckling young captain. He is met by Vixus, his first officer, a statuesque Klingon female. It's clear she adores Claw. Captain Claw, we have a target in sight, a probe of ancient origin. Difficult to hit? Most difficult. Good! Claw's crew watches with excitement as their captain straps himself into his command chair, which has been equipped with an elaborate gunner's rig allowing Claw to do the shooting himself. All weapons to my control. A periscope-like device swings into position in front of Claw's flashing eyes. 
The probe is a tiny travelling speck in the distance. Its course is erratic. The probe tumbles through space as the bird of prey sweeps down for the attack. Machine gun-like phasers are mounted on the bird's wings. They come to life and swivel, blasting a flange off the front of the probe. A second blast destroys a fin on the rear of the craft. A third shot blows away the antenna. Kla is toying with the target. The crew cheers each hit. They admire their captain and his deadly skill. But Kla seems dissatisfied. He hesitates finishing the probe off. Shooting space garbage is no test of a warrior's medal. I need a target that fights back. Captain, we are receiving a priority message from Operations Command. Kla unstraps himself from the command chair and joins Vixus at the monitor screen. The fearsome face of a Klingon commander fills the screen and starts barking Klingon over shots of Nimbus 3 and the Paradise Outpost. It's clear the bird of prey is being ordered to Nimbus 3. Kla and Vixus are charged with excitement. One of the hostages is a Klingon! And the others? A Terran and a Romulan. That means the Federation will send a rescue ship of its own. Plot a course for Nimbus 3! Unable to contain his excitement, Kla returns to his command chair. I've always wanted to engage a Federation ship. The crippled NASA probe wobbles in the foreground, almost out of range. In the far distance, the bird of prey. Kla's guns come to sudden life and blow the probe to atoms in a blinding flash of light. Yosemite. Night. Another blinding light, this one a ball of great intensity, sets down on the edge of the campsite, rousing Kirk, Spock and McCoy from sleep. Get that damn light out of my face! The three men rise and watch as a figure in silhouette emerges from the light and comes forward. It's Uhura. Mr. Scott apologizes for having to send the shuttlecraft, but the transporter beam is not operational. Captain, we've received important orders from Starfleet. Why didn't you beat my communicator? You forgot to take it with you. Uhura hands Kirk his communicator. It's clear he left it behind on purpose. Wonder why I did that. Well, gentlemen, it appears Shorely's been cancelled. Pack out your trash. The bright light leaves the deserted campsite and rises against the mountain. It turns towards camera and reveals itself as a sleek shuttlecraft of impressive design. Aft thrusters fire and it shoots skyward. This is the Galileo 5 capable of transporting two dozen personnel. At the moment, its passengers are Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Uhura, who pilots the craft. The Enterprise is seen in her shining glory above Earth, framed against a full moon. The approaching Galileo is dwarfed by the magnificent starship. Kirk gazes fondly at Enterprise. All I ask is a tall ship and a Star, to steer by. Herman Melville.
John Macefield. Are you sure about that? I am well versed in the classics, Doctor. And how come you don't know row, row, row your boat? Ready for landing maneuver. Enterprise, you have control. Roger, Galileo 5. Open by door. Transfer power to the tractor beam. Enterprise hangar deck. A crewman watches a graphic of the approaching shuttlecraft. Bay doors open to receive Galileo. The tractor beam locks onto the shuttlecraft and slowly pulls her inside. It's a delicate maneuver. Even with wings retracted, the Galileo clears the door with only a few feet on either side. The crewman operates the controls. The shuttlecraft comes in for a smooth landing. Its side hatch opens to allow Kirk and company to exit. There's no one to greet them, just a few crewmen scurrying around. Scotty appears. He may be exhausted and covered with grime, but he is in his element. All I can say is they don't make them like they used to. You told me you could have the ship operational in two weeks. I gave you three. What happened? I think you gave me too much time, Captain. Very well, Mr. Scott. Carry on. Aye, sir. No rest for the weary. How many times do I have to tell you? The right tool for the right job. Camera follows Kirk into the turbolift where Spock, McCoy and Uhura wait. I don't think I've ever seen him happier. Turbolift doors close with a grinding sound. Level, please. Bridge, I hope. Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Uhura are carried upward. I could use a shower. Yes. A surprise reaction from Kirk. A whoosh, but only half the automatic door slides open. The other half is stuck. Kirk must manually force it open to enter the bridge. Doesn't anything work on this ship? Captain on the bridge. An attractive yeoman comes forward with the jacket of Kirk's uniform. He shrugs off his camping jacket to reveal a Go Climb a Rock t-shirt underneath. Uhura and Spock go to their stations. McCoy shakes his head at the noisy, messy bridge. Starfleet's got some nerves sending us out in this condition. Why, the ship's a virtual ghost town. Ready for Starfleet transmission. Can we have a little quiet, please? A little quiet? Thank you. On screen, Commander. Kirk is still fiddling with his buttons as the face of an admiral appears. Behind the admiral, images and data. The image is shaky at first. Am I on? Bob? Enterprise, this is Starfleet Operations. Jim? You're dressing rather informally, I see. You caught me on my way to the shower. Understood. Sorry to interrupt your shore leave, but look, we've got a dangerous situation on Nimbus 3. On the planet of galactic peace? The same. From what we can make out, a terrorist force has captured the only settlement and taken hostages of the Klingon, Romulan, and Federation consuls. Now, I know the Enterprise isn't completely up to specs. With all respect, the Enterprise is a disaster. There must be other ships in the quadrant. Other ships, but no experienced commanders. 
Captain, I need Jim Kirk. Go ahead, Bob. Your orders are to proceed to Nimbus 3, assess the situation, and avoid confrontation if possible. But above all, you've got to get those hostages out safely. Have the Klingons respond? No, but you can bet they will. Starfleet out. The view screen flickers off and Kirk addresses his expectant crew. I'm afraid the ship's problems will have to be solved en route since we're undermanned. I'm counting on each of you to give his best. Into a speech. Let's get to work. Mr. Sulu, plot a course for Nimbus 3. Aye, sir. Plotted. McCoy sidles over to Kirk. If you ask me, Jim, and you haven't, this is a terrible idea. We're bound to bump into the Klingons, and they don't exactly like you. The feeling's mutual. Engine room. Scotty here. We'll need all the power you can muster, mister. Didn't you worry, Captain? We'll beat those Klingon devils, even if I have to get out and push. I'll keep your offer in mind, Mr. Scott. Best speed, Mr. Sulu. Kirk settles into his command chair. He shifts uncomfortably. What's wrong, Jim? I miss my old chair. Enterprise edges away from the moon at impulse power. Then, like she was fired from a slingshot, the ship warps into space. Klingon space. The bird of prey slices through the fabric of space, headed for Nimbus 3. Kla paces his deck like a restless buccaneer, eager for confrontation. Fixus approaches. We've just intercepted an encoded message on the Federation frequency. The starship Enterprise has been dispatched to Nimbus 3. Enterprise? That's Kirk's ship. Kla's eyes flash with excitement. There will be no peace as long as Kirk lives. Our Empire's highest bounty has been placed on his head. James T. Kirk. I've followed his career since I was a boy. A man to admire and hate. If I could defeat Kirk... You would be the greatest warrior in the galaxy. Maximum speed! The crew hops to it. Claw turns to Vixus and gives her chest a thumping Klingon salute. Kapa! Vixus passionately returns the gesture. Kapa, my captain. The Enterprise sails towards the neutral zone. Captain's Law, Stardate 84. Try again. Captain's Law, Stardate 80. Forget it. Uhura addresses Kirk from her station. Captain, we're receiving the hostage information you requested. On screen. Spock and McCoy come forward to watch. The screen comes to life. Factual information, photographs, film and visual illustrations depict the background of the three hostages. Not General Kor. The same. He has apparently fallen out of favor with Klingon High Command. His appointment to Nimbus 3 appears to be a form of banishment. Kord's military strategies were required reading when I was a cadet at the academy. When they put me out to pasture, I hope I fare better than Kord. This must be the hostage tape. A tape of poor quality. Image and sound come and go. A static shot of Caitlin Dar, flanked by Talbot and Kord. 
Unlike the lively girl of the first scene, Caitlin is now restrained, dazed. Talbot and Cord are also strangely subdued. In the background, we can see several of Cybok's soldiers brandishing weapons. Their weapons appear to be extremely primitive. At 1400 hours, we willingly surrendered ourselves to the forces of the Galactic Army of the Light. At this moment, we are in their protective custody. Their leader assures us that we will be treated humanely as long as you cooperate with his demands. I believe his sincerity. He requests that you send a Federation ship to parlay for our release. Be assured we are in good health and would appreciate your immediate response. <laughs> Hostage mentality if I ever saw it. Cybok looms into shot, blocking the captives. I deeply regret this desperate act, but these are desperate times. I have no desire to harm these innocents, but do not put me to the test. I implore you, I implore you, to respond within 24 hours. End of transmission. Spock strides to Hohura's console. He backwinds the tape and freeze frames on Cybok's face. It's blurry, indistinct. Spock is transfixed by the image. What is it, Spock? You look like you've just seen a ghost. Captain, perhaps I have. Spock turns and exits. The Enterprise comes past camera. We move in on a single window in the forward area of the dish. A vast area designed for contemplation. The most arresting feature is an antique ship's wheel. The kind Horatio Hornblower might have steered. The wheel stands in front of a tall curving window that offers an impressive space vista. Spock is beside the wheel, staring at the stars, lost in thought. In his mind he hears a distant voice from the past. I will find Shakari. Kirk and McCoy enter with urgency and approach Spock, interrupting his reverie. Throughout the following, Spock continues to stare thoughtfully at the stars. Spock, what is it? Do you know this Vulcan? I cannot be sure. But he does seem familiar. He reminds me of someone I knew in my youth. Why, Spock, I didn't know you had one. I do not often think of the past. Who is it he reminds you of? There was a young student, exceptionally gifted, possessing great intelligence. It was assumed that one day he would take his place amongst the great scholars of Vulcan, but he was a revolutionary. What do you mean? The knowledge and experience he sought were forbidden by Vulcan belief. Forbidden? He rejected his logical upbringing and embraced the animal passions of our ancestors. Why? He believed the key to self-knowledge was emotion, not logic. Imagine that. A passionate Vulcan. When he encouraged others to follow him, he was banished from Vulcan, never to return. Fascinating. Captain to the bridge. On my way. Kirk and McCoy head for the exit. Kirk hesitates on the threshold. He looks back into the room. Spock is still at the window, lost in thought. Spock? Coming, Captain. Spock snaps out of it. He hurries to join Kirk. The Enterprise approaches Nimbus 3. Approaching Nimbus 3. 
Kirk, Spock and McCoy arrive on the bridge. This time, it's the other half of the turbolift door that fails to open. Kirk shoves it open so that he, Spock and McCoy can enter. Nimbus 3 is on the view screen. Hailing frequencies open. Standard orbit, Mr. Sulu. Captain, we're receiving a transmission from Paradise City. They demand to know our intentions. Respond with stat. Let them think we're having difficulty. It wouldn't be far from the truth. Paradise City, can you boost your power? We are barely receiving transmission. Any sign of Klingon vessels? Scanning. Transporter room, status. Sky here, Captain. Transport is still inoperative. Even if we could lock on to the hostages, we cannot beam them out. Then we'll have to get them out the old-fashioned way. Klingon vessel now entering quadrant. Bird of prey, estimating one hour until weapons come to bear. Damn, let's move. Nimbus 3, Paradise City, Night. Its walls and craggy structures loom against the planet's twin moons. Inside the saloon, tables and chairs have been cleared aside. A single figure stands before an old-fashioned communication screen. It's Cybok, waiting with great patience. Paradise City, this is the Starship Enterprise. A Federation Starship. An image flickers and takes hold on the screen. We see the bridge of the Enterprise. The command chair swings around and reveals its occupant to be Chekhov. This is Captain Pavel Chekhov speaking. You are in violation of Neutral Zone Treaty. I advise you to release your hostages at once, or suffer the consequences. Cybok regards Chekhov with a calm smile. Your threats amuse me, Captain Chekhov. What consequences did you have in mind? The shuttlecraft Galileo streaks towards Nimbus 3's surface, deploying wings as it enters the atmosphere. Sulu occupies the pilot seat. Nearby are Uhura and seven Enterprise crewmen. Kirk and Spock are huddled over a graphic screen. They are dressed in field uniform. Phasers and transparent shields have been dispensed. Their scanning systems are primitive but effective. I recommend we land here, coordinate 8563. That puts us pretty far away from Paradise City. To land any closer would risk detection. Mr. Sulu, execute. The shuttlecraft swoops out of the dark sky and skims the surface of Nimbus 3. Kirk and Spock are side by side. Kirk buckles himself in, then notices that Spock is lost in his thoughts and has not buckled up. Kirk leans over and buckles Spock's belt for him. You okay, Spock? I am fine, Captain. Damn fine. Chekhov addresses Cybok from the communication screen. Even as we speak, a Klingon warship is on its way. We estimate arrival within the hour. I imagine the Klingons will be quite angry. You are a master of understatement. They're likely to destroy the planet. Then it's fortunate I have you and your starship to protect me. In the meantime, Captain, I instruct you and your first officer to beam down to my coordinates. We will be happy to beam down, but first we must have certain assurances. Name them. Galileo lies behind a dune. The lights of Paradise City are glimpsed over the rise, a mile off. The crewmen all spill out, 
lining up in formation, clutching their rifles and shields. Kirk and Spock scramble up the side of the dune and scan the distant outpost with night-vision binoculars. There's nothing between them but flat expanse. At foot speed, I estimate the journey to Paradise City at 1.2 hours. We don't have 1.2 hours. Wait a minute. Through his binoculars, Kirk spots a tiny oasis in the near distance. Perfect. A band of ragtag soldiers gather around the oasis. They are six in number, all men, members of Cybok's force. They are heavily robed to retard the night chill. They chat and drink. Nearby, their horses sip from a meager spring. A woman's song floats out of the darkness, soft and mysterious, seductive. The soldiers look at each other in surprise, then rise en masse to seek the source of the singing. One of them points over his shoulder with excitement. In the distance, atop a dune and silhouetted against the low-hanging twin moons, a woman. But not just any woman. This siren undulates as she sings, moving sensually. It's a hurrah. Drawn like moths to a flame, they stumble over each other to get a closer look, climbing on hands and knees up the steep dune where Lorelei Uhura waits at the top. The slavering soldiers have almost reached the summit when they hear whinnies from their horses. The soldiers tear their eyes away from Uhura and look back to the camp. The Enterprise crew is rounding up the horses. They turn back to Uhura, who towers above them, a phaser in each hand. Hello, boys. I've always wanted to play to a captive audience. Armed Enterprise crewmen enter shot to back her up. Snarling horses pound over a rise, sending sand in all directions. Riders hurtle past camera with flowing capes and cowled faces. Ahead of them, Paradise City. Behind them, the desert, a sea of darkness. Kirk rides with determination, his face nearly hidden behind a burnoose. He looks over at the rider beside him. It's Spock bouncing stiffly on the saddle, doing all he can to hang on. Spock! Yes, Captain. Be one with the horse. Armed sentries watch from the walls of the Paradise City Gate as the scruffy band of horsemen cross the desert. John, Cybok's convert, appears, looking concerned. The huge iron gate swings open. They gallop at full tilt, led by Kirk. He shouts frantically to the sentries. Federation soldiers, about a mile behind us, close the gate! As Kirk and his party gallop through, the gate is closed behind them. Kirk and the company rein their horses to a stop. Much movement and confusion, he shouts to John and the soldiers on the walls. The more than a hundred of them! Fortify the walls! John and the soldiers turn their attention to the desert and prepare themselves for the confrontation. As soldiers rush past them to defend the walls, Kirk and company coax their horses towards the saloon at the end of the street. They ride slowly, not wanting to attract any more attention than they have. 
Occasionally, a crew member drops away from the group and dismounts, taking a position where he can lay down cover for the eventual escape. Kirk's eyes sweep around. There are soldiers on most of the rooftops, heavily armed and dangerous looking. Spock hides a tricorder in his lap. Hold your horse, Captain. I am scanning. The hostages are in the structure just ahead. Hiding it from view, Kirk raises a communicator to his lips. Galileo, this is Strike Team. Start your run. Aye, sir. On my way. While the others watch the desert, John rushes to the big spotlight anchored on the wall. He swings its bright beam in the direction of the horseman. Spock and his tricorder and Kirk and his communicator are revealed as the light sweeps across him. Kirk and the others turn and react to the light, realizing that the jig is up. Phasers on stud! Get rid of the mouse! Sulu, take that light! The crewmen dismount and whip out the phaser rifles they've hidden under their robes. Sulu spurs his horse and charges the spotlight as pebbles fired from the enemy's crude weapons whiz around them like angry hornets. He gallops towards the blinding light, raises his phaser, and with an expert shot, blows it to bits. The street goes dark, lit now by neon and the flash of gunfire and phasers. The soldiers on the walls and rooftops open fire with their crude weapons. The Enterprise crewmen fight back from strategic positions along the street, expertly picking off the enemy and using their transparent shields to repel the volley of pebbles. Cyborg reacts to the gunfire. What's going on? I instruct you to surrender at once. You are under attack by superior Federation forces. Do you realize what you've done? It wasn't bloodshed I was after. Cyborg turns and strides out of the room, his robes swirling around him. Wait! Come back! A symphony of smoke and rapid gunfire, dizzying action, running figures, stampeding horses. Kirk rides his horse in the direction of the saloon, clenching the rings with one hand, firing his phaser with the other. Enemy soldiers scatter in his wake. An enemy soldier leaps from a balcony, landing squarely in the saddle of Spock's horse. Armed with a sword, the soldier urges the steed forward to trample Spock. As Spock turns in response, the soldier rears the horse up on its hind legs, hooves threaten to pummel Spock into a hamburger. Spock calmly reaches up and presses his fingers into the horse's neck, executing a Vulcan nerve pinch. The horse collapses at Spock's feet. The ride stumbles off, Gasping in disbelief at the Vulcan, Spock arches an eyebrow at him. The rider turns and runs like hell. Kirk thunders up the steps of the saloon on horseback. He swings down and stuns a soldier with a phaser blast. Cyborg's soldiers set up a multiple pipe weapon cranked like a gatling gun. Like the other weapons, it uses pebbles for bullets. One of them catches an Enterprise crewman in the leg. He goes down. McCoy rushes to the wounded crewman who clutches his leg. McCoy drags him to safety and digs into his kit. I haven't seen a wound like that since med school. 
These people are savages. McCoy passes an instrument over the wound that emits a healing ray and affects the pebble. The crewman flexes his leg. All better, McCoy gives the pebble to the crewman. Here's a souvenir. Stay off that leg for at least two minutes. The saloon is dark and empty. Phasers drawn, Kirk cautiously makes his way across the room when, with a sudden hiss, the dancing catwoman leaps over the bar and pounces on his back. As she claws at him, Kirk twirls her around in an airplane spin and throws her the length of the room. The catwoman lands in the pool table, sending up waves of water that soak the walls. Spock enters and reacts to the unconscious catwoman as Kirk blasts open the door to the back room. Catherine, Cord and Talbot look up in surprise. Kirk breathes a sigh of relief. Thank God! Spock appears at Kirk's side as Kirk signals for the hostages to follow them. But the hostages confound them by pointing three crude pistols at their heads. What the? Please cooperate. Would you mind handing over those weapons? The shuttlecraft has landed inside the city and has been captured. Cybok soldiers shout their victory from the gates and rooftops. Others swarm into the street. Kirk and Spock are marched out of the saloon by the hostages. The rest of the Enterprise crew is herded together. Cybok appears from behind the shuttlecraft to thunderous cheers. The soldiers shout his name. Well done, my friends. Well done. As the cheers begin to die, Spock detaches himself from Kirk and McCoy. In Vulcan, he calls to Cybok, whose back is turned. Qual S2, Cybok? Cybok cocks his head to one side. For the first time, we see him vulnerable. He's afraid to turn and look. The voice, the question... It couldn't possibly be who he thinks it is. Or could it? Qualis too. Now Cybok knows he's not dreaming. He pivots and confronts Spock across a distance of several yards. Soldiers move away, clearing a path between the two Vulcans. Spock! John reacts with amazement. Spock! Cybok opens his arms to embrace his fellow Vulcan, but Spock will have none of it. He raises his hand, a stop sign. Cybok stops short, hurt and confused. They regard each other. Spock is without emotion, all business. It dawns on Cybok that this is not out of character for Spock. Cybok smiles. Still tight-assed. It's clear Cybok is trying to force an emotional reaction from Spock, but Spock refuses to fall into his trap. Spock, it's me! It's Cybok! You finally caught up with me! Isn't there anything you want to say? Yes. Well? You are under arrest for violating 17 counts of neutral zone treaty. Cybok is incredulous. There must be a hundred guns pointed at Spock's heart. (laughs) Cybox can't help it. He chuckles. The chuckle becomes a full, rich laugh. The soldiers join in, and soon their laughter is ringing through paradise. (laughs) Why, Spock? 
You've developed a sense of humor after all. It was not my intention to amuse you. These are serious charges. If you surrender now... I'm sorry, Spock, but I can't surrender now. I'm not through violating neutral zone treaty. In fact, I'm just getting started. And for my next violation, I intend to steal something... something very big. John and several soldiers chuckle knowingly. Spock seems bewildered. I must have your starship. You started this to get your hands on my ship? Cybok regards Kirk in his grubby commando outfit. Who are you? James T. Kirk, captain of the Enterprise. But I thought Chekhov. I see. Very clever, Captain. Sprock, it would appear you've been given a second chance to join me. What do you say? I am a Starfleet officer. Of course. Then I'll take the ship without your help. The Enterprise Bridge. Chekhov, Scotty, and a tense crew. Shuttle on route. Position, build the prey. Closing. The Klingon ship approaches Nimbus 3. Bird of Prey Bridge. Claw and Vixes react to Enterprise on their view screen. Stealth approach. Slow to one quarter impulse power. Prepare to cloak. A klaxon sounds. The bridge is bathed in red light. Engage cloaking device. The bird of prey distorts and becomes invisible. Scotty reacts to a monitor screen. Mr. Chakoff, we've lost the bird of prey. She must be cloaked. Ray shields. But the shuttle. Do it. Scotty punches in commands. On his graphic screen, a series of dots wink on around an outline of a ship. The Galileo is slowing, heading back to the ship. The Enterprise is in the far distance. Kirk, Spock and McCoy are guarded by John and a select handful of Cybok soldiers. Sulu and Uhura pilot the craft while Cybok confers with Caitlin and Cord. The remainder of the Enterprise crew has been left on Nimbus 3. Talbot informs Kirk of the plan. Once we've taken control of your vessel, we'll bring up the rest of our followers. Klingons are out there. We'll be lucky to get back to the ship ourselves. They're interrupted by Chekhov's voice on the radio. Galileo, this is Enterprise. Condition red alert. Bird of prey approaching. She is caught. Raising shields. Recommend Galileo find safe harbor until situation secure. Acknowledge. Sulu and Ahura turn to Kirk for instruction. No reply. Remain on course. Cybok, listen to me. For this craft to enter the landing bay, Enterprise must lower shields and activate the tractor beam. To bring us inside and then re-raise the shields will take, uh... Exactly 15.5 seconds. Exactly 15.5 seconds. An eternity. We should be vulnerable to clean on attack. Cord, you tell them. He speaks the truth. If my people have cloaked, then they intend to strike. We cannot turn back. Let me do something. Cybok regards Kirk with suspicion. He turns to Spock, the only one he could trust. 
You must allow us to act. Do what you must, but no more. Kirk punches a button on the console. Enterprise, this is Galileo. The Klingons have been monitoring the exchange between Enterprise and Galileo. Kirk! He's on the shuttlecraft! Alter attack course! Understand your situation, Enterprise, but unable to return to planet. Stand by to execute emergency landing plan B. Chekhov and Scotty exchange confused looks. What's emergency landing plan B? I didn't have a clue. B, as in barricade. They cannot be serious. The shuttle draws closer to the Enterprise. In order to lower and raise the shields as quickly as possible, we're going to forego the tractor beam, fire in manually. Manually? How often have you done this? Actually, it's my first attempt. Cybok looks at Kirk in amazement. Kirk smiles uneasily and indicates Sulu. He's good. Really. Scotty, on my mark, open the bay doors. With agonizing slowness, the bay doors begin to open. Claw flexes his itchy trigger finger and peers into his viewscope. The shuttlecraft swims into the target crosshairs. Stand by to decloak for firing. Kirk to Scotty. Lower shields. Scotty punches in commands. Ah, lowering shields. On Scotty's graphic screen, the dots wink out around the outline of the ship. Enterprise is now vulnerable. The Klingon ship is sighted. Bird of Prey, bearing 105 Mark II. Go, Sulu! Sulu hits the aft thrusters and the shuttle roars to life. The shuttlecraft takes off with a tremendous kick, like it was fired from a slingshot. The tiny craft closes the gap between itself and Enterprise at alarming speed. But the bay doors? They haven't opened wide enough yet. Just when it looks like Galileo will pulp itself on the fantail, she banks 90 degrees. Galileo negotiates the narrow opening by coming on its side. It skids down the runway, showering sparks all the way, unable to stop. To our surprise, a cargo net pops up to keep it from crashing into the retaining wall. As the shuttle recoils against the net, passengers are thrown about like rag dolls. Lights blow out and instrument panels explode. Claw gapes in surprise. The target has zoomed out of his sights. Bear on Enterprise! They're in! Transfer power to the warp drive! Warp speed now! Enterprise targeted. Firing! Claw squeezes the trigger. One moment, the Enterprise there, the next she's gone in a flash of blinding light. Cloud's shot goes into the void. Cloud reacts with amazement to Enterprise's sudden departure. Track her course! As Vixus and the crew hop to it, camera pushes in on Claw, who throws off his gunner's rig, unable to hide his admiration for Kirk's cleverness. The badly damaged Galileo lies smouldering on its side on the hangar deck. In the smoking wreckage, passengers have been flung everywhere. 
No one's been killed, but all are dazed or unconscious. Cybok and Kirk come to simultaneously. But before Kirk can act, Cybok snatches up a primitive shooting weapon and aims it at him. We must change course at once. I'll take you to the bridge. The Galileo's back hatch blows open, emitting a cloud of smoke along with Kirk and Cybok. As Cybok steps down behind him, Kirk whirls and grabs for the weapon. The two men struggle and tumble across the landing bay floor. Kirk is no match for the Vulcan's superior strength, but he fights with everything he's got. He manages to knock the weapon from Cybok's hand. It skitters across the floor and stops at the feet of Spock, who has emerged from the shuttle. Spock looks down at the weapon, then back to Kirk, whom Cybok is rendering helpless with one hand. With his incredible strength, Cybok forces Kirk to the floor. Spock, pick it up! Spock obediently picks up the weapon like it was a distasteful object. Kirk collapses on the floor, conscious but no longer able to fight. Cybok faces Spock. Cybok, you must surrender. Spock, you can't stun me with that weapon, and I've always been stronger than you. I'm afraid you'll have to kill me. Spock raises the weapon as Cybok advances. Spock, shoot him! But Spock can't shoot. The emotional price is too great. He lowers the weapon in shame and defeat. Cybok takes it from him with a smile. For a moment, I thought you might actually do it. Cybok's soldiers emerge from the wreckage of the shuttle with McCoy. The doctor hurries to Kirk and helps him to his feet. Kirk, in pain and betrayed, glares at Spock and cannot meet his eyes. Cybok turns to John. He indicates Kirk and McCoy. Put these two in the brig. Spock will accompany me to the bridge. I will not. Then you must join them. John and several other soldiers march Kirk, Spock and McCoy out. Scotty witnesses the action on the deck below. Fortunately, no one sees him. He steps back into the shadows. Caitlin, Kord and Talbot emerge from the shuttle with Sulu and Uhura in tow. These two will be useful. Uhura and Sulu are defiant. Cybok approaches them. Give us a moment alone. Don't be afraid. Inside the brig, Kirk, Spock and McCoy are shoved into a cell by John. Phaser beam bars materialize to contain them. Kirk is enraged. Damn it! Damn it! Captain, what I have done... What you've done is betray every man on the ship. Worse, I have betrayed you. I do not expect you to forgive me. Forgive you? I ought to knock you on your damn ass. If you think that'll help. You want me to hold him, Jim? You stay out of this. Why, Spock? All you had to do was pull the trigger. If I had pulled the trigger, Cybok would be dead. I ordered you to defend your ship. You ordered me to kill my brother. That man might be a fellow Vulcan, but that's no reason to... You did not hear me, Captain. Cybok, too, is a son of Sarek. Kirk and McCoy can't believe it. He's your brother-brother? You made that up. I did not. Cybok couldn't possibly be your brother, because I happen to know for a fact that you don't have a brother. Technically, you are correct. I do not have a brother. You see? I have a half-brother. 
I need to sit down. Let me get this straight. You and Cybok have the same father, but different mothers. That is correct. Cybok's mother was a Vulcan princess. After her death, Cybok and I were raised as brothers. But why didn't you tell us this before? I was not prepared to discuss matters of a personal nature. For that, I am sorry. He's sorry. Well, he's sorry. He's Well, I guess that makes everything all right, doesn't it? Stop it, Jim. Spock couldn't kill his own brother any more than he could kill you. If you want to punish him for what he's done, why don't you throw him in the brig? Kirk's anger burns itself out. Besides, we've got bigger problems to deal with, like how we're going to get out of here. I'll say one thing, Spock. You never cease to amaze me. Nor I myself. Doors whoosh open to admit Uhuru and Sulu. Chekhov in the command chair stands to greet them. I was beginning to worry. What is the captain? Cybok enters, followed by the hostages and several armed soldiers. Chekhov looks at Uhuru and Sulu in confusion. They, like the hostages, are smiling warmly. Converts to Cybok's cause. It's alright, Pavel. Cybok will explain everything. Sulu moves past Chekhov and takes his seat at the helm. He punches in commands. Sulu, what are you doing? Plotting our new course. New course? You have no authority. What have you done to them? Pavel, I'm doing what I think is right. You've got to listen to this man. I won't force you. The decision must be yours. I don't understand. Each of us hides a secret pain. Share yours and gain strength from the sharing. Kirk balances on Spock's shoulders, examining the ceiling, seeking a means of escape. Kirk uncovers a fixture. Spock shakes his head negatively. Useless. Kirk turns the fixture. It snaps off in his hand. He throws it away and investigates the circuitry panel. Spock once again disapproves. Unwise. Kirk touches the panel and receives a shock that causes him to tumble to the floor. You could have warned me. He did, Jim. There's got to be a way out of here. This is a completely new brig, Captain. It is escape-proof. How do you know? The designers tested it on the most intelligent and resourceful person they could find. He failed to escape. This person? He didn't, by any chance, have pointed ears and unerring capacity for getting his shipmates into trouble, did he? He did have pointed ears. The Enterprise continues at warp speed, disappearing from shot in a blur of blinding light. Uhura and Sulu are at their stations. Chekhov once again occupies the command chair. Cybok stands beside him. In the background are Caitlin, Cord, and Talbot. Following new course, warp 7. Estimating destination in 6.7 hours, present speed. Cybok looks happy and paternal, less driven. He turns to Uhura. Now that we're underway... It's time I announce my intentions to the rest of the ship. Brave crew of the Starship Enterprise. Consider the questions of existence. Who am I? Why am I here? Does God exist? These are the questions man has asked ever since he first gazed at the stars and dreamed. My Vulcan ancestors were ruled by their emotions. They felt with their hearts, made love with their hearts. 
and believed with their hearts. Above all else, they believed in a place where these questions of existence would be answered. Modern dogma tells us this place is a myth, a fantasy concocted by pagans. It is no fantasy. I tell you it exists. My brothers, we have been chosen to undertake the greatest adventure of all time. The discovery of Shakari. Baffled responses from Kirk and McCoy. Is it possible? Is what possible? That he's found it. Shakari. The reason Cyborg left Vulcan. Our destination, the planet Shakari. It lies beyond the Great Barrier at the center of the galaxy. Center of the galaxy? Where Shakari is fabled to exist? But the center of the galaxy can't be reached. No ship has ever gone to the Great Barrier. No probe has ever returned. Cyborg possessed the keenest intellect I have ever known. Spock, my only concern is getting the ship back. When that's done, you can debate Shakari until you're green in the face. Until then, you're either with me or you're not. I am with you. That's a little vague, Spock. An infrequent, almost inaudible tapping sound comes from the back wall of the cell. What's that damn noise? They turn and regard the back wall. The tapping continues. I believe it is a primitive form of communication known as Morse code. They scramble over and huddle beside the wall. You're right, Spock. I'm a little out of practice. Let's see, that's an S? I believe the next letter is a T. A. N. of word. Stand. New word. B. A. C. K. Back. Stand back. They're about to congratulate themselves when they realize it's a warning. Stand back! They dive for cover as a large panel explodes from the wall, showering them with dust. Scotty appears in the opening. Well, what are you waiting for? Didn't you know a jailbreak when you see one? Cybok, John, and Sulu exit the turbo lift and head for the brig. The bond between these three is strong. Difficult to penetrate. This is going to be quite a challenge. The brig doors whoosh open. They step inside and are confronted with an empty cell. The prisoners have vanished. We've got to find them. Scotty leads Kirk, Spock, and McCoy through the labyrinth innards of the ship. Captain, we cannot trust no one. If we could send a distress signal, we'd never make it to the bridge. There is an emergency sending apparatus in the forward observation room. The only problem is, it's up there, and we're down here. Yeah, I might be able to reach it by means of turbo shaft number three, which is closed for repairs. It'd be a long and dangerous climb. Some of us get off on long and dangerous climbs. Scotty, get the transporter working. If we make contact with the rescue ship, we'll need it. Aye, sir. Count on me. Now, which way to the turbo shaft? Head down this tunnel and make a right at the hydro vent. Then a left at the blow screens. You can't miss it. Mr. Scott, you're amazing. Nothing amazing about it. Why, I know this ship like the back of my hand. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy start down the tunnel. Scotty walks off in the opposite direction. 
Scotty turns the corner and whacks his head on a low-hanging pipe. He collapses to the floor, out cold. A warning klaxon sounds. Cyborg soldiers sweep through the ship. Secure all levels. Kirk, Spock and McCoy gaze up at a narrow and seemingly endless elevator shaft. An emergency ladder attached to the wall is the only way up. Look at it this way, we'll get a workout. Or a heart attack. Kirk starts to climb the emergency ladder. McCoy reluctantly follows. Spock watches, then, on notice, he slips away. Sulu, leading a team of converts, rounds a corner and nearly stumbles over Scotty. Scotty groans. Get Mr. Scott to sickbay. Kirk climbs hand over hand, followed by a huffing and puffing McCoy. Jim, this is going to take me forever. Where's Spock? Kirk and McCoy look down. No Spock. Just then, a soft whooshing sound from above. They look up. Spock descends wearing the levitation boots from Yosemite. He floats alongside Kirk and McCoy, hovering in midair. I believe I have found a faster way. Kirk breaks into a smile of relief. He steps off the ladder and grabs onto Spock. They dip down a few feet and slowly rise to a hovering position beside McCoy. Bones? You go ahead. I'll wait for the next car. We're not splitting up. Grumbling, a little fearful, McCoy steps on board. Their combined weight causes them to sink steadily downward. It would appear we are too heavy. Must have been all those marshmallows. They continue to descend at an alarming rate. Sulu and the search party appear at the bottom of the shaft, armed with phasers. There! The trio sinks lower, on the verge of capture. Spock, the booster rockets! If I activate them, we will be propelled upward at an unpredictable speed. Fire the rockets! Spock hits the boosters. With an explosion of power and noise, they shoot skyward like a bullet. Our heroes are an upward blur that shows no sign of stopping. Spock hits the brakes and they stop barely one floor from the ceiling, bobbing in midair. Kirk and McCoy are white as sheets. I am afraid I overshot our mark by one level. Nobody's perfect. All ashore. Spock guides them to the exit. The observation lounge is dark, deserted. The grandeur of space lies beyond the tall, curving windows. Kirk, Spock and McCoy enter and cross to the communications console. Spock activates it. Functions come to life. Emergency channel open. 21. Within the sound of my voice, this is Captain James T. Kirk of the Federation Starship Enterprise. If you read me, acknowledge. Several tense moments pass, then a burst of static, followed by a faint... Scratchy female voice. Enterprise, this is Starfleet Command. We read you. Over. A hostile force has seized control of our vessel and put us on a direct course with the Great Barrier. Our coordinates are zero, zero, zero. Mark two. Request emergency assistance. Acknowledge. Understood, Enterprise. The Starfleet Command voice belongs to Vixus. 
Behind her, Kla sits smugly confident. We are dispatching a rescue ship immediately. Roger, Starfleet. The transmission crackles out. Kirk shares hopeful looks with Spock and McCoy. Fixes turns to Kla. Kla barks an order to his helmsman. Plot course! Zero, 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 mark two. But Captain, that course will take us into the barrier as well. Kla isn't about to let a little thing like death stop him. Where Kirk goes, we follow. Kirk, Spock and McCoy start for the exit when they're startled by the appearance of Cybok, John and several armed soldiers. I trust your message was received. You can't expect us to stand by while you take the ship into the Great Barrier. It can't be done. What you fear is the unknown. The people of your planet once believed their world to be flat, but Columbus proved it was round. They said the sound barrier couldn't be broken, but it was broken. They said warp speed couldn't be achieved, but it was. The Great Barrier is the ultimate expression of this universal fear, an extension of personal fear. Captain Kirk, I so much want your understanding and respect. Are you afraid to hear me out? I'm afraid of nothing. Cybok turns to John and the soldiers. Wait outside. John and the soldiers reluctantly withdraw. Cybok indicates four chairs arranged in a circle. I'm sure you have many questions. Here, with the stars of the galaxy for our backdrop, we shall seek the answers together. The four men take their seats. The lighting becomes intimate. Cybok weaves his spell. Scotty awakens to find Uhura holding him in her arms. Easy, Scotty. You're back with us. Uhura! Oh, I had the strangest dream. I dreamt that a madman had taken over the Enterprise. Dear Scotty, he isn't a madman. He's not. Cybox, put us in touch with feelings we've always been afraid to express. Ahura gives Scotty a loving look. Uh, I, I have to get back to the transporter. Scotty slips out of her arms. But there's so much I want to tell you. Maybe, maybe when I'm a wee bit stronger... I don't think I can take it in my present condition. Or yours. Scotty heads for the exit. Beyond the windows of the observation lounge, the swirling vastness of space. Kirk, Spock and McCoy, and Cybok, sits in a circle. Shakari. The source. Call it what you will. Heaven, Eden. The Klingons call it Kwitu. To the Romulans it's Vortavor. The Andorian word is unpronounceable. Every culture shares this common dream of the place from which creation sprang. For us, that place will soon be a reality. The only reality I see is that I'm a prisoner on my own ship. What is this power you have to control the minds of my crew? I don't control minds. I free them. How? By making you face your pain and draw strength from it. Once that's done, fear cannot stop you. Spock? It is an ancient Vulcan ritual, forbidden in modern times. Sounds like brainwashing to me. Cybok closes his eyes and concentrates deeply. Your pain is the deepest of all. What? I can feel it. Can't you? 
It's some kind of trick. Leonard. Father? The surrounding walls come alive with energy. What follows is theatrical in style as we enter a subjective world. My God, man, don't do this to me. McCoy turns to find himself in a brilliantly white, sterile hospital room. A wasted figure reclines on a bed, an old man connected to a powerful life support system. This is McCoy's father, and we are somewhere in the past. Leonard. McCoy rushes to the bedside. I'm here, Dad. I'm with you. The pain. Stop the pain. I've done everything I can do, Dad. You've got to hang on. Come, stand pain. Help me. In the near background, Cybok watches with Kirk and Spock. They're entranced by what they're seeing. All my knowledge, and I can't save him. You've done all you can. The support system will keep him alive. You call this alive? Suspended between life and death by a bridge of pain? His father whispers something. McCoy bends down and puts his ear next to the old man's parched lips. Release me. McCoy looks into his father's eyes. The old man's gaze travels to the support machinery. He wants McCoy to shut it off. I can't. But how can I watch him suffer like this? You're a doctor. I'm his son. McCoy reaches his decision. He shuts off the machine. The father dies in his son's arms. Cybok appears at McCoy's side. Why did you do it? To preserve his dignity. But that wasn't the worst of it, was it? No. Share it. McCoy hesitates, trembling. This is his darkest secret. Not long after, they found a cure. A damn cure! If you hadn't killed him, he might have lived. No! I loved him! You did what you thought was right. Yes! No! Yes! No! You must release this pain! Release it! McCoy weeps for several moments, then wipes the tears away. He looks up at Cybok's comforting smile and is filled with a deep sense of relief. This pain has poisoned your soul for a long time. But now you've taken the first step. The other steps we'll take together. McCoy nods. Cyborg turns to Spock. Each man's pain is unique. I hide no pain. I know you better than that. Do you? Spock, don't. It's all right, Captain. Proceed. A woman screams in agony. Ah! Kirk and Spock turn and find themselves beneath the hanging stalactites of a cave. Torchlight throws weird shadows on the walls. The shadows depict a woman in labor attended by a Vulcan high priestess. Ceremonial drums pound a throbbing pulse. The woman lets out another scream. It reverberates throughout the cavern. What is this? I believe we are witnessing my birth. Cybok appears beside them. He leads Spock and Kirk into the past. Spock's mother, the young Earth woman, Amanda, 
lies on a rough pallet, her legs spread beneath her robes, her distended stomach lifting. Her only attendant is the High Priestess, who intones the Vulcan birthrights. Spock watches. A figure steps from the shadow. It is Sarek, Spock's father. He observes his wife with typical detachment. As the drums build in intensity, Amanda begins to deliver. The birth takes place in shadow. Drums reach a climax and stop. An infant cries. Amanda lifts the mewling baby from between her legs. Spock watches his entry into the world. The priestess takes the baby from Amanda and holds it up. The tiny infant kicks and cries. Amanda reaches out for her child, but the priestess turns and presents the crying baby to Sarek instead. So human. Sarek takes the infant and lays it on Amanda's belly. Amanda beholds the child up close. As it thrashes against her, she sees for the first time its tiny pointed ears. Neither yours nor mine. Kirk looks at Spock with concern. Cybok has failed. I resolved this pain long ago. From behind comes a faraway voice. The voice of young Cybok. Spock! Spock turns, unprepared for this. A figure regards him from a distance, a hood shadowing his features. It appears to be Cybok on the day he and Spock parted. I must go now. Cybok, wait. I can't. They've banished me. Spock is in shadow, featureless, but his voice and demeanor is that of an adolescent boy. Then take me with you. Spock. I want to go with you. It's not possible. I'm an enemy of the people, a heretic. Besides, you have chosen the Vulcan way. But where will you go? Where I can be free. Where I can prove I was right. I'll find Shakari. The hooded figure recedes into the distance. The light comes up on Spock's face. We are back in the present. Cybok appears at his shoulder. Spock turns to face him. Cybok. That is your pain. You begged me. You begged to come with me then. Come with me now. Spock turns away from Cybok and the others. What have you done to my friends? I've done nothing. This is who they are. Didn't you know that? No, I didn't. Now learn something about yourself. No, I refuse. Jim, try to be open about this. About what? That I've made the wrong choices in my life? That I went left when I should have gone right? I know what my weaknesses are. I don't need Cybok to take me on a tour of them. If you just unbend and allow yourself to... To be brainwashed by this con man? I was wrong. This con man took away my pain. Damn it, Bones, you're a doctor. You know that pain and guilt can't be taken away with a wave of a magic wand. They're the things we carry with us, the things that make us who we are. If we lose them, we lose ourselves. I don't want my pain taken away. I need my pain. Cybok, this is the bridge. We are in approach of the Great Barrier. Cybok is filled with excitement, eager to go to the bridge. Captain, I'm afraid you'll have to remain here. Spock, Doctor, come with me. Cybok and McCoy start for the exit, but stop when they realize that Spock is remaining with Kirk. Spock? I cannot go with you. Why? I stand with my captain. 
I don't understand. You are my brother, but you do not know me. I am not the outcast boy you left behind. Since that time, I have found myself and my place in the world, here, among these people, my shipmates. This ship is my life. McCoy reacts to this speech. After a moment, he takes his place with Kirk and Spock. I guess you'd better count me out, too. Beyond the great windows, space is changing, reflecting this unique part of the galaxy. Cybok regards Kirk, Spock, and McCoy with affection. This is only a temporary setback. He knows the ultimate win will be his. Then I'll see you on the other side. Wait. You know I'll never make it through the Great Barrier. But if we do, will that convince you that my vision was true? What vision? Given to me by God. He waits for us on the other side. You are mad. Am I? We'll see. The fiery look in Cybok's eyes might be confidence, it might be madness. He turns and exits. Enterprise is poised on the edge of the giant star cluster known as the Great Barrier. It is visibly stunning and equally dangerous. We see giant regions of star formations as well as expanding blastways from exploding stars. Beams of radiation from pulsars sweep the tiny and insignificant ship, bathing her in colour. Cybok is on the bridge. Uhura, Chekhov and Sulu are at their stations. Caitlin, Kord and Talbot are also present. They and the rest of the crew are transfixed by the viewscreen, awed by the vista of a sky filled with thousands of stars, each a fiery orange. But what really draws their attention is the black thundercloud looming directly ahead. Here starts the ring of gas and dust that enshrouds the centre of the galaxy hiding it from view. Behind this black veil lies a region that emits ten times more energy than our sun. Through the chinks in the wall, we see flashes of blue light, hints of the fires blazing within. The ship's monitor screens go blank. They say no ship can survive it. I say they're wrong. I see the danger as an illusion. We have no instrument readings. Is it there or isn't it? Mr. Sulu, full ahead. Full ahead, aye. And with that, the Enterprise plows into the barrier, straight into the dark clouds, disappearing from sight. We hold for a terrifying moment, wondering if we'll ever see Enterprise again. Surprisingly, there is no turbulence, no buffeting. The Enterprise travels through a fantastic passageway of light and colour, Then quite suddenly the gas clouds part and the ship enters a region of incredible calm and serenity, like the clear space at the eye of a hurricane. The crew experiences the euphoria of safe passage. A wave of joy washes over them. Kirk, Spock and McCoy feel the rush of happiness. They gaze through the window at this incredible spacescape, unable to deny the sensation stirring within them. Cypok was right. Dead ahead, a single planet, a planet of great beauty and peace, our final destination. Kirk, fascinated by the planet, moves to the antique ship's wheel. He absentmindedly rests his hand on it. 
his eyes are drawn to the plaque attached to the spokes of the wheel. On it, the charter of the Enterprise has been set in bronze, to go where no man has gone before. Are we dreaming? If we are, then life is a dream. Fascinating. The bridge buzzes with excitement. Monitor screams come to life. Instruments are back online. Incredible. There's a power source emanating from the planet like nothing I've ever seen. On the view screen, the planet appears up close. A celestial orb cloaked by swirling white clouds. Quick shots of awed reactions. Shakari. Vortavor. Kuitu. Eden. The bridge doors whoosh open to reveal Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. The others turn, fearful of what he'll say or do. A tense moment. Then... About the ship. It needs its captain. No special conditions? No conditions. What makes you think I won't turn us around? Because you too must know. Kirk feels the excitement of being on the verge of a great frontier. Perhaps the greatest frontier. Then if we're going to do it, we'll do it by the book. Check off, take the con, Sulu, standard orbit, approach, Uhura. Alert the shuttlecraft to stand by. Cybok, Spock, and Dr. McCoy with me. The rest of you will remain on board until I've determined what we're dealing with. Kirk's eyes flash with excitement. Well, don't just stand there. God's a busy man. Hangar deck doors open. Copernicus, the shuttle backup, emerges and drops from the mothership. Thrusters fire as it streaks towards the planet, disappearing into the swirling white clouds. Spock pilots the craft. He, McCoy, and Kirk have changed into Starfleet uniforms. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Cybok descend into the bowl of the crater. They reach the center and stop. They look at each other, wondering, is this all there is? Cybok tries to hide his disappointment. He looks around for a sign that isn't there. Then, after a moment of deafening silence, he addresses their bleak surroundings. We have traveled far! We have traveled far! We have traveled far! By starship! Nothing. It looks like a bust. Cybok's voice chokes off and he lowers his head. Kirk and McCoy frown at each other. Kirk whips out his communicator to address the ship. Enterprise, this is Kirk. Spock goes to Cybok and puts a comforting hand on his brother's shoulder. Perhaps. Spock's words are obscured by a rumble from within the earth. Clouds turn ashen and threatening, transforming day into night. The ground comes to life beneath the feet of our heroes. The earth buckles and ripples as if nature herself were trying to break free. Without warning, a pillar of sheer rock rips up through the surface and climbs skyward. Then another pillar shoots up followed by another and another. The fingers of rock form a crude cathedral. Within this primitive cathedral, Kirk, Spock, McCoy and Cybok watch as the ground in front of them melts like molten lava. It swirls, creating a vortex. A rushing sound comes from the planet's core, 
growing closer. Something of incredible power is on its way to the surface. A shaft of energy explodes out of the vortex. It shoots skyward like an erupting geyser, blinding our heroes with its beauty and raw power. The energy shaft rises from the planet like a beacon light. Enterprise, just outside the shaft, is bathed in its reflection. Cyborg staggers back. Like Kirk, Spock and McCoy, he must shield his eyes from the intensity of the energy shaft. It pulsates and throbs with life. A godlike voice comes from within. Brave souls, welcome. Is this the voice of God? As if responding to McCoy's question, the energy shaft throbs. From the swirling dust within it, a living form begins to take shape. The shape is powerful, beautiful, enticing. Cybok and the others watch in wonder. The wind it kicks up causes them to stagger back. Within this maelstrom of power, the form of humanity begins to take shape. And it takes on many forms, each reminding us of the holy paintings that have depicted the Almighty through the ages. Shifting images of God appear before the Enterprise crew. One moment the figure is Ra, the next Allah. He's black, white, female, male, and Dorian, Klingon. Each witnesses a flash of his own God. They watch the God show with mounting fascination. The being synthesizes into the biblical heavenly father of our imagination. The being turns his gaze to Cybok, Kirk, Spock and McCoy. He beams with pleasure. His eyes twinkle. Does this better suit your expectations? It does indeed. No one knows what to say. Cybok is vindicated. He can barely contain his ecstasy. Qualshatu? It is I. The journey you took to reach me could not have been an easy one. It was not. The barrier stood between us, but we breached it. Magnificent. You are the first to find me. We sought only your infinite wisdom. And how did you breach the barrier? The starship. Ah, this starship. Could it carry my wisdom beyond the barrier? Yes, it could, yes. Then I shall make use of this starship. It will be your chariot. Kirk politely raises a hand. Excuse me. It will carry my power to every corner of creation. Excuse me? The being regards Kirk like he was a pesky insect. I just wanted to ask a question. McCoy looks at Kirk like he just farted in church. What does God need with a starship? The being returns his attention to Cybok. Bring the ship closer. I said... What does God need with a starship? Jim, what are you doing? 
I'm asking a question. The being once again regards Kirk. Kirk stands his ground. Who is this creature? Who am I? Don't you know? Aren't you God? The smile leaves the being's face. Thunder rumbles faintly in the distance, underscoring his displeasure. He has his doubts. You doubt me? I seek proof. Jim, you don't ask the Almighty for his ID. Then here is the proof you seek. A bolt of energy shoots from the being's eye and then strikes Kirk full in the chest, knocking him to the ground. Spock and McCoy look on in shock as Kirk, now injured, tries to rise. Why is God angry? Cybok is confounded. He addresses the being. I don't understand. Why have you done this to my friend? He doubts me. Spock takes it upon himself to step forward. You have not answered his question. What does God need with a starship? The being's countenance turns dark. Another bolt shoots from his eye and heads for Spock. Crash! Spock is knocked to the ground. On the bridge of the Enterprise, the crew can't comprehend this turn of events. Cord, Caitlin, and Talbot look at each other in horror. The being turns to McCoy. Do you doubt me? McCoy looks at the being's handiwork, his injured friends. I doubt any god who inflicts pain for his own pleasure. The being is on the verge of zapping McCoy when Cybok interrupts. Stop! The god of Shakari would not do this! By way of reply, the being smiles a truly wicked smile, and Cybok realizes to his horror that he's been tricked. Shakari? <laughs> An eternity I've been imprisoned in this place. The ship. I must have the ship. Now give me what I want. Spock shouts to his brother. Cybok, this is not the god of Shakari or any other god. I don't understand. Reveal yourself to me. The being changes into Cybok himself, a dark, sinister reflection of Cybok. This evil Cybok laughs, enjoying the reaction. What's wrong? Don't you like this face? I have many, but this one suits you best. Cybok's self-realization is painful to behold. No, it's not possible. Bring me the ship, or I will destroy you. Ship? Bring it closer, so that I might join with it. Do it, or watch these puny things die horribly. The being indicates Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. Kirk Enterprise, listen carefully. Spock! What have I done? Cybok. This is my doing. My arrogance, my vanity. Save yourselves. No, Cybok. Cybok raises his hand to Spock in the Vulcan gesture of farewell. Forgive me. Cybok turns to face the being, 
gathering up all his power. Spock starts forward, but Kirk holds him back. Cybok has no fear as he confronts his evil mirror image. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. Cybok boldly enters the shaft and embraces his evil twin. As they grapple, the good and evil cyborgs merge into one twisting and thrashing body, clearly at battle with itself. The good cyborg tears him loose. He dominates the struggle until the evil cyborg manages to rip through and fight back. The two cyborgs, good and evil, battle on, merging, tearing apart. On the Enterprise, Sulu and Chekhov in action. Sulu uses all the tricks of the pilot's trade to angle the ship into the best possible attack position. Chekhov punches commands into the weapons console, plotting the correct torpedo trajectory. It's like watching two master musicians play a symphony in a windstorm. The screens in front of them blink and flash with graphic displays and warnings. Kirk, Spock and McCoy watched the titanic struggle raging within the energy shaft. As they grapple, the two cyborgs are slowly pulled downward into the hole. Enterprise, are you ready? In firing position, torpedo armed. But Captain, we're firing directly on your position. Sit it down, Mr. Chekhov, now! A photon torpedo leaves the dish and streaks forward. Impact is seconds away. Kirk, Spock and McCoy run for cover. From far beneath the surface of the planet comes the sound of the explosion. The ground blisters and puckers. A blinding explosion erupts from the hole. The energy shaft vanishes. Enterprise is safe. Smoke, debris, the cathedral is in disarray. An eerie silence. Kirk, Spock and McCoy emerge from cover. The energy shaft is a memory. In its place there is only a gaping hole, glowing raw and red like a wound. Cybok. A rumbling sound from within the earth. The hole throbs. We've got to get out of here. A horrific creature pulls itself out of the abyss. A fire-breathing monster made entirely of rock. It spots the escaping threesome and clambers after them. The unattended screen on the Enterprise Bridge still depicts the bird of prey. Estimated time of intercept, four minutes. Then the graphic of the ship vanishes and is replaced with the warning Cloaking device engaged. Position unknown. On the bird of prey, Enterprise appears on the view screen. Claw is out of his command chair, pacing the deck like a restless buccaneer. Enterprise defense systems are down. Captain, they don't know we're here. They will in a moment. Claw settles into his gunner's rig. Kirk, Spock and McCoy make it inside the shuttlecraft. The door closes behind them. Spock, get us out of here. Before Spock can act, a tremendous blow rocks the shuttle. There's something out there, and it wants to get in. Spock tries the controls. Thrusters are inoperative. Kirk whips out his communicator. 
Scotty! Scotty here, Captain. Please tell me the transporters are now working. She's got partial power, sir. I might be able to take two of you. Bebop, Spock, and Dr. McCoy, now. Now wait just a damn minute! Before Spock and McCoy can protest, the transporter beam shimmers down and takes them away. A second later, the windshield behind Kirk is smashed to pieces by a monstrous fiery arrow. Spock and McCoy step off the transporter platform on the Enterprise. Scotty is at the control console. Thank you, Mr. Scott. Bring up the captain. Aye, sir. At that moment, Enterprise absorbs a terrific jolt. Spock, McCoy and Scotty go flying as the transporter explodes in a shower of sparks. The Klingon ship has decloaked and fired from a position directly in front of Enterprise. In cowboy terms, it's got the drop on them. Kirk realizes he's not going to be beamed up. The rock creature comes in after him. Kirk escapes through Copernicus's rear hatch. He disappears into the darkness, pursued by the rock creature. The crew painfully pulls itself together on the bridge. Fires are put out. Auxiliary power comes on. Spock, McCoy and Scotty enter. What about Jim? We can't just leave him down there. Please, Doctor, try to get a grip on yourself. Status report. Mr. Spock, Klingon captain wishes to name his terms. On screen. Claw appears on the view screen, arms folded across his chest, seated triumphantly in his command chair. This is Captain Claw of the Klingon Empire. Attempts to raise shields or arm weapons and I will destroy you. You are alive for a single reason. The renegade James T. Kirk, hand him over and I will spare your lives. My transporter stands ready to beam aboard. Captain Kirk is not among us. You lie! I am a Vulcan. I cannot lie. Captain Kirk is on the planet below. Then give me his coordinates. Spock glimpses a possibility. He turns to Kord and speaks with urgency. General, I am in need of your assistance. My assistance? You are his superior officer. I can do nothing! I am a foolish old man. Damn you, sir. You will try. Kord sees that Spock will not take no for an answer. On the planet... Kirk scrambles from one hiding place to another as the rock creature pursues him, able to anticipate his every move. With nowhere to go but up, Kirk scales a steep pinnacle. He climbs with agility and speed. He'd better. The pursuing creature is practically breathing fire up his ass. Kirk clambers to the top of the pinnacle and finds himself trapped. He always knew he'd die alone. The rock creature climbs up to get Kirk, an inhuman voice issuing from its flaming mouth. Give me the A whooshing sound from overhead. Kirk looks up. The bird of prey drops out of the storm clouds. Its guns come to life and strafe the rock creature, driving it back away from Kirk. Kirk is vulnerable atop the pinnacle. 
the bird of prey hovers directly above him, its guns swiveling in his direction. Kirk is determined to go down fighting. So it's me you want, you Klingon bastards. Come and get me! The bird of prey's transporter beam shimmers down and engulfs him. Kirk disappears in its sparkling light, saved from the rock creature who lets out an angry roar of defeat. The bird of prey takes off with its prize. Kirk materialises. He's immediately seized by two brutal-looking Klingons. They march him out of the transporter room. The bridge doors slide open and Kirk is brought in. The Klingon crew regard him from their stations. Kla is off to one side, looking petulant. Kord stands beside him, chest puffed up with pride, obviously in charge. Release him! The guards step away from Kirk. Kla glares at Kord, but it's clear the older Klingon is now calling the shots. Kord growls at Kla. Kla looks embarrassed. The attack on your vessel was not authorized by my government. Kirk is speechless. He stares in amazement. The command chair swivels around to reveal its occupant to be Spock. He unstraps himself from the gunner's rig, stands up and straightens his uniform in a dignified manner. Welcome aboard, Captain. Kirk regards the stoic Spock with affection and wonder. Spock! I thought I was going to die. Not possible. You were never alone. Kirk fights back tears and clasps his friend in a hug. Spock stiffens with embarrassment. Please, Captain. Not in front of the Klingons. Kirk laughs and hugs him all the harder. Spock tentatively hugs him back. Enterprise and Bird of Prey are side by side, in orbit around the planet. A reception is in full swing. Spock and McCoy are discovered off by themselves, standing at the observation window, gazing out at the god planet. Try this on for size. Has it occurred to you that the Great Barrier wasn't placed to keep us out, but to keep that thing in? It has occurred to me. Well, doesn't that imply the existence of a greater power? I will say this much, Doctor. We have yet to reach the final frontier. Cord polishes off a tumbler of fluid. He frowns. What he wants is a real drink. Scotty approaches him. Would you care for a wee nip of scotch whiskey? Scotty produces a bottle and pours a splash into the Klingon's tumbler. Cord downs it with obvious relish. Scotty smiles. I never thought I'd be drinking with a Klingon. Cord chortles agreeably and moves off. We follow him over to Talbot and Caitlin. And what are you two conspiring about? We're just thinking how far we've come in such a short time. We certainly have. Gentlemen, it's about time. They share a warm laugh. Kirk has been watching with satisfaction. As he turns, he notices Claw eyeing him keenly from across the room. The young gun locking eyes with the seasoned pro. With a smile, Kirk gives Claw the Klingon salute. Kirk notices Spock and McCoy still standing at the window, still staring out, oblivious to the party around them. Kirk approaches. Cosmic thoughts, gentlemen? We were speculating. Is God really out there? Maybe he's not out there, Bones. Maybe he's right here. Human heart. Spock? 
I was thinking of Cybok. I lost your brother once. But I was lucky I got him back. I thought you said men like us don't have families. I was wrong. Dissolve to Yosemite night. McCoy pours two cupfuls of bourbon and hands one to Kirk, who sets aside his marshmallow on a stick. Kirk and McCoy clink cups in a silent toast and drink, distracted by strange plinking sounds from close by. Spock is revealed, absently strumming his Vulcan lute in search of a tune. Well, are you just going to sit there and pick at it, or are you going to play something? The plinks and plunks gradually become a tune. The unmistakable, row your boat. Kirk and McCoy react with delight. McCoy takes a hit of bourbon and clears his throat. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. The three shipmates sing loudly with feeling and gusto. Their voices climb into the night sky.